0: Hi, I'm Andrea Blake, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Emily Jungmin Yoon. Emily is the author of A Cruelty Special to Our Species, published by, by Echo in September 2018, and Ordinary Misfortunes, the 2017 winner of the Sunken Garden Chapbook Prize by Tupelo Press and selected by Maggie Smith. Her poems and translations have appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, The New York Times Magazine. Korean Literature Now, and elsewhere. She currently serves as the poetry editor for The Margins, the the literary magazine of the Asian American Writers Workshop, and is a PhD student studying Korean literature in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Emily, and thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I am super excited to be able to talk to you today about um, your book, A Cruelty Special to Our Species. But before we launch to that, I would like to uh, talk a bit more about your journey and towards becoming a poet and publishing your book. So how how did you first start to engage with poetry, both as a reader and a writer?
1: Uh, So I've loved poetry um, since I was very young. And um, I got into poetry, quote unquote, more seriously in high school, uh, when I had a really good creative writing teacher. His name is Terrence Young. Uh, He's retired now. But um, I took a writing class with him in 11th grade, uh, or in 10th grade, I don't don't remember. But he's, he's mainly a poet and his enthusiasm and support for poet students really um, propelled my passion for poetry forward. And um, I that was that just became my favorite thing to do. I would go home after school and start writing. Or if I was walking around at the street and observed something cool, I would think about how I would transform that into poetry. So yeah, I think that's when I really got into writing uh, a lot and. My um, my passion for poetry just kind of exceeded that of writing anything else.
0: <laughs> so, um, what was your journey like? What was the first piece you ever published, and how did you get there?
1: Um, so, in high school, I published a couple of poems um, in a youth journal called the Claremont Review, and I didn't write that much in college um, because I was just too busy, like keeping up with just all the other classes and just having new social lives and everything. But um, my first publication, my first, um, I guess, national um, like adult oriented journal um, that I published in was Apiary. Um, Actually, that was in my senior year of college. Um, And it's a magazine based in Philadelphia.
0: Great. So um, I was also curious because uh, I, over various places, I heard a lot of discussions regard back and forth discussions regarding the value of MFA programs to mm. poetry and literary right. careers. So as somebody who's gone through an MFA program, and graduated from one. I'm curious about your personal experience with that and what value you found.
1: Right. Uh, So I attended New York University uh, from 2013 to 15, And before that, I have to admit, I was very naive about just the whole MFA system. (laughs) Um, And I didn't really have a lot of expectations. I just decided to apply because I wanted to I wanted a concentrated time in which I could just write prolifically. Um, And actually, I went to NYU and whatever expectations I had were exceeded. I just met so many people um, who really helped me grow as not only a poet, but also a person. And being in New York was really helpful as someone who wasn't very... um, in touch with the contemporary poetry scene because New York has so many literary events going on every day. So it was really easy to, you know, quote unquote, um, catch up. And I just had a wonderful time and I had, um, Kimiko Han as my thesis advisor, um, at my last semester. And it was really wonderful having her, um, having an Asian woman, um, as my advisor uh, to look over um, my manuscript with that uh, shared sensitivity and knowledge of of um, East Asian history, so that was really wonderful, and I did have an opportunity to teach an undergraduate class in creative writing, which was also very helpful as well as someone who does want to uh, teach in the near future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I do think that a lot of people question, I mean, a lot of people ask if they need to get an MFA or if an MFA is a must um, in order to be a writer, and I absolutely don't think that. Maybe if the person wants to teach in an academic institution, um, it is helpful to have a degree because administrations usually require them anyway um but yeah I I just think that it's important to find a community and it doesn't have to be in a school
0: yeah I didn't go through an MFA program myself but um I've always I love the idea of going through a program <laughs> just because of the sense of community that it potentially has to create
1: yeah I mean I think it's you know, it's a great resource for many people, um, especially for someone like me who just came fresh out of undergrad and didn't really know um, what she was doing. <laughs> but, you know, there is community out there. There are a lot of workshops and retreats that are not in academic institutions, and I think they can be just
0: as helpful. Great. So, um Now that we've brought up to here, let's come back around to um, a cruelty special to our species, which I absolutely loved for um, how multi-layered and lyrical and beautiful it is. Um, And one of the core subjects is the discussion of um, comfort women. Um, uh, And I'm not, I believe it's after World War II, Um, and so I was wondering if you talk about what inspired you to talk about the subject and to put this book together as a whole, um, and maybe a little bit about the the history um, for those who might not know much about it.
1: Sure. Um, So the comfort woman is a euphemistic term for sex slaves of the Japanese Empire. So they were actually a force since of slavery in the late 30s and early 40s um, in the Japanese Empire's wars, the Pacific War and the the Russo-Japanese War. So it was actually before the Second World War and thus Mm -hmm. before the liberation of Korea and Japanese colonies. And um, we still don't know everything about their history. I think we don't even have the exact number of women who became comfort women. And the range of numbers is very big. Some people estimate that it was 20,000 women. Uh, some people estimate that it was 400,000 women. So that is quite a range. And I decided to write about their history because it was something that is in the past, obviously, but also very now and in immediate in, in the Korean Uh, Collective consciousness because it's an issue that hasn't been, uh, I suppose, quote unquote, resolved yet. There are still uh, rallies every Wednesday in Seoul in front of the Japanese embassy asking Mm -hmm. for the recognition of their history and reparations. And there are fewer than 40 former comfort women alive in South Korea right now. And I also decided to write about this history because, like you said, um, their history is, for the most part, not very familiar to people outside of Korea and maybe people who may not be as, um, I guess, familiar with East Asian history in general. And um, I was thinking about Ways I could talk about things that were important to me culturally, but in a way that was accessible to other people um as in I didn't want to be didactic or pedantic and i I definitely didn't want like a historian's burden, so I was thinking of ways to engage people with this history um, and help them access it through emotion and poetry does. Provide the perfect medium for that so that's how I kind of got into that and I didn't really uh write my manuscript thinking that it's going to be a project book and some people have referred to it as such and you know I don't think I'm not saying they're wrong but that wasn't really my intent in the beginning it's just that these poems just kept coming and coming mm. and yeah and they just kind of became the centerpiece of my manuscript
0: yeah there's um there's a lot of powerful pieces regarding that uh, this that discussion and um some of the pieces i I found especially moving were the the testimonies mm-hmm. and I've also found it interesting that these testimonies were pulled from documentary materials so um I was curious about your process of pulling from Documentary p- materials and the fact that that you're kind of translating from those materials into poetry and um, how you approach that in a way to being while being respectful to these real life stories
1: right so the testimonies were called from the recorded testimonies in Other books actually so I had to do some archival research to really find out about their stories um, apart from just historical narratives right and so the testimonies were already you know recorded transcribed and translated by other researchers and I it was a difficult task I suppose trying to translate them into poetry because like you said I I would constantly question myself like m- do I have the the right to do this and how do I do this respectfully and how do I convey to readers that that I'm intending to write poems out of their stories um with empathy and I don't know I I try to Um, transfer them into the poetic space in a a way that shows my discomfort doing so. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the ways that I did it is to kind of visually scatter these words on the page that kind of disrupts the reading process. And a lot of the lines, they're kind of pushed together or there are gaps in them. And a lot of people... Uh, trip over them or they've told me that they've tripped over them when they read them themselves. And I kind of intended for that to happen um, to show that, first of all, these are, you know, narratives that make people uncomfortable and they should feel uncomfortable. But also just my my um, transcribing them into the poetic space was also an uncomfortable process for me. And just trying to engage with the reader in our mutual discomfort, um, was one of my intentions. And I tried not to, um, add a lot of my own language in it, even though sometimes it was inevitable because I had to rearrange, um, some parts of the stories or rearrange some words, but I didn't want to change the actual tale You know what I mean, and that's that's um something that I have to do with a lot of sensitivity towards the story, and also just thinking about my role here, because I'm I'm trying to fundamentally retell their stories, not to recreate them for my own purpose. Right. But that is something I struggle with all the time still.
0: (laughs) I. I can understand how, how that would be Um, in a way though, you're also helping to spread the reach of their voice further um, by opening it up to a different audience.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm glad you, you think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's still, it's really scary um, writing poems, of people you know, who are not me and whose life that I didn't live.
0: Yeah, I can, I can definitely imagine <laughs> that. right? Um, yeah. So, um, uh, another grouping of poems, which I believe, um, came out of the chapbook that you put together are the series of poems that are an ordinary misfortune, um, and They're spread throughout the book, and they all have the same title. Um, and I'm always fans, fascinated by the idea of multiple poems with the same title because mm-hmm. of how they can reinterpret that title in different ways each time. Um, and uh, I love how multi layered these are, um, in terms of their different approaches to uh, women and and the the things they have to face in their everyday lives and the fact that they're ordinary and um and the the weird normalcy of of, of these unfortunate events and misfortunes right. that happen and um anyways i'm, I'm monologuing a little bit but <laughs> um i i would love to hear more about these poems in particular and and um, how they came together under the same title allowed you to spin off into to so many different vor- versions of sure. this idea.
1: So the title "An Ordinary Misfortune" came from one of the books that I was reading on comfort women, and it was quoting another book that said becoming a comfort woman or like be- being tricked into becoming a comfort woman um, was so so prevalent that at a point it became an ordinary misfortune, and I was very struck by that sentence and just that the phrasing of that an ordinary misfortune you know it's just a an amazing understatement, right, but it also speaks to yeah. how often it happened and how it was just so ingrained in people's consciousness and their lives. And so I wrote a poem titled An Ordinary Misfortune about the comfort women's history. I believe that's the first poem in the book. Yes. And I just kept going back to that title and thinking about other ordinary misfortunes that are in our lives, especially in women's lives, especially in marginalized folks' lives. So I continued writing poems using the same title, thinking about other misfortunes, other violences against the body. So that's how it came about. And uh, I actually wanted to title my manuscript Ordinary Misfortunes, my full-length manuscript. And um, one of my friends said it's no, uh, you have to do something else because, um, it's just, I guess, too much repetition or something. Um, and you know, not that like I have to agree with everything that other people say, but you know, I was like, maybe I do need to title it something that s- gestures elsewhere as well. Um, and I made a chapbook after I wrote my full-length manuscript, and because I wanted that to be more just historically grounded in this specific topic, I decided to name that Ordinary Misfortunes. And the title for my full-length manuscript came much, much later.
0: Um, How did you settle on the the title uh, Cruelty Special to Our Species for your full-length manuscript? Uh,
1: Well... I actually tentatively titled it Charge Number One, which is the name of the condom that the Japanese imperial soldiers used against the comfort women. And I, uh, my agent told me to change it. <laughs> <laughs> and she told me, she suggested that maybe I could just use lines from other poems that I have in the book and see which one really sticks and the cruelty special to our species is from one of the poems Fail theory and at the end it just seemed like it it fit you know it fit the, the other poems as well even though it comes from one poem because the book really is about the cruelty special to our species as as human beings yeah. and you know it doesn't the book doesn't have to be about the comfort women's issue only and i i think that especially in the last section, I tried to gesture toward something more personal or something that has to do also with our environment. So, yeah, I thought it just
0: sit the book. Yeah. Um, uh, and speaking of that last section, it, it does shift the the book as a whole a little bit by talking about more modern concerns, like you mentioned, environmentalism and, and various recent um, things that have happened and, um, and so forth. So, um, in terms of it also, that last section feels, um, seems to shift the tone in terms of feeling hopeful in some ways. (laughs) Right. And um, so in terms of organizing the book, can you you talk a little bit about how those poems came together and how it echoes the rest of the book while while bringing it into the modern?
1: Mm, Yeah, I did try to go into tenderness more in the last section and of course in deal with contemporary um more recent concerns as well um but also talk more about my personal experiences and hopefully to suggest some kind of pathway into the next manuscript, although I'm not working on it right now. (laughs) And um, yeah, the organization of the book was difficult to figure out. Um, The ordering of poems is really one of the most challenging things of putting together a manuscript, I think. And the last section, in a way, felt kind of natural. Just the way that these poems um, tonally came together, like you said. Mm -hmm. And also I think that um, it suggests our cruelty, not against just other human beings, but also other bodies, non-human bodies. So in a way, I'm hoping that the last section kind of expands on what we've been thinking about up to that section and just our various cruelties in our society and think of it as something that we're inflicting on the greater world
0: as well. Mm. Does that make sense? Um, (laughs) Yes. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Um, And, and the last poem in the book, time, time in Wales, Mm -hmm. um, has this beautiful exploration of um, this natural element, while also playing with language and looking at the roots of language and how words can have one meaning while also having other meanings. And I noticed that that was a theme throughout the book: the play of language and the way words can mm. can have multiple meanings. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about your the way you Approach language in this way, and what draws you to the multiple meanings and the depths of what language can reveal
1: Yeah, that poem is one of the later poems that I wrote while working on this manuscript, and so it means i my meditations on language and poetry um, are fairly recent um, thinking about how to incorporate Korean and my Korean background into my English language poetry, it has been a more recent obsession. And I think about that a lot. um, Self-translation into poetry and what it means to me to write in English while being a bilingual person, um, someone with a Korean family and all that. And I think a lot about how maybe I am a poet writing in the English language because I'm a Korean speaker, um, someone Mm -hmm. who was uh, raised speaking Korean, um, who grew up in Korea for the first, like, 11 years of my life. And I do think that Korean informs my poetic language, just the kind of um, acuity to language. By that, I mean, sometimes when I... And looking at something, maybe I will describe it in Korean, or I'll, I'll think of a Korean word for it or a Korean expression for it. And there are times when I'm like, oh, I can't really translate that back into English. But that kind of confusion or the gap between two languages is like a ground very rich with poetry. You know what I mean? Like putting something that you don't have words for into words in a way that, like, other peoples can see it too, the way you see it. That kind of click is really satisfying. And I think all poets feel that, not just, like, bilingual or bicultural poets, but finding that way in language, putting imagery, etching it in a way that other people can see it when no one really could before. And, um, well, not only that, I did really actually come into poetry... Uh, In high school, like I said before, because I think I had this um, nervousness about English, even though at that point I was fluent, I was still making a lot of errors and had a lot of self-consciousness about my speech. And in poetry, you know, there was really no way I I could fail in English. First of all, you know, it doesn't, I don't have to speak it out loud. (laughs) even though at readings people do but you know first of all it's like a textual presence
0: yeah
1: and in poetry just breaking of rules is is more than welcome so in a way yeah like being korean speaking korean kind of really helps me um or informs my poetry in ways that i didn't consider until maybe a year ago And that's something I'm still thinking about.
0: Does that answer your question? Or was that something completely different? That was wonderful. That was it exactly. Um, uh, I love that. And I I love what language can do as well. And it's one of the reasons why I read poetry. Because of the way it can reveal uh, emotion and describe, describe experiences in a way that that nothing else can so I think you expressed it wonderfully.
1: Right. I um, mean exactly we're all translating the world in our own language, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Um yeah, so um in in terms of the poems in this book, is there there a particular poem that is like a favorite to you or stands out as well representative of of the collection as a whole that you'd like to share with us? Well, I have a few
1: that um, that are particularly close to me. I mean, I you know, I love all my poems. Um, you know, yeah. I, mean, I love all my children, but um yes, of course. <laughs> there, there are some poems <laughs> right. There are some poems that I feel particularly um, maybe tender about or intimate with or even scared of. Um so like not to say they're like the best poems or like my favorite poems but you know poems that are kind of born out of a sense of vulnerability. Um and I think the first poem in the book The First Ordinary Misfortune is something that kind of really launched this manuscript into existence. Mm. Um one, because it is part of the prose poem series that permeates throughout the book and also because it's about the comfort women. But also I think it it has that kind of contemporary concern in it, just like the question of my role in revisiting and re-narrating um, this history. Um, yeah. And Bell Theory is another one that is very close to me because I, well, for obvious reasons, because it talks about my my failures in English and the consequences. I, I feel very close to that poem as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to pick a poem to read for us?
1: Yeah, um, maybe I'll read An Ordinary Misfortune, the one that I just mentioned. Sounds great. Okay. An Ordinary Misfortune. Mine is the jam-packed train, the two-week cocktail This statement by an American man at the bar. Your life in Korea would have been a whole lot different without the U.S. Meaning, be thankful. This question by a Canadian girl, a friend. Why don't you guys just get along? The guys, Japan and Korea. Meaning, move on. How do I answer that? Move on, move on, girls on the train. Destination, comfort stations. Things a soldier can do. Mount you before another soldier is done. Say, drink this soup made of human blood. Say, the Korean race should be erased from this earth. Tops down. Bottoms up. Things erased. Your name. Your child. Your history. Your new name. Kumiko. Hanako. Yoshiko. Name of the condom. Charge number one. Name of the needle. Compound 606. Salverson means an arsenic to save. Ratio 291, 29 soldiers per girl. Actual count lost, lost all. Shot, 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 everybody. Give thanks.
0: <sighs> Got chills hearing me read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's, it's a very powerful piece. Um, and one of the many things I like about it is the way that it illustrates how um the history is not really dead. It echoes through to the modern mm. time. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: And, yeah. And it's also the act of, of creating a poem in this way is is kind of an an unerasure, a taking back of the erased mm. and and bringing it back up into the light.
1: Right. And I, I am thinking about at what point does an event or something become history rather than a present concern, mm-hmm. right? Because we do think about, I mean, I do think about the comfort women as, as like a historical thing that happened um, to these women. Obviously, that's in like our collective knowledge in Korea, but it is still going on. Mm-hmm. Like this, their history is still alive and we're still trying to, we're still trying to speak about it and speak it aloud and, you know, push against revisions in that history. And right, yeah, it's, it's a complicated question. I don't have answers to it, but <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I don't know that there are easy answers to it, but um... right. I guess there, there shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah so um as we're talking about uh your poetry and poetry in general and and bringing stories to light um i'm curious um about your thoughts on the the impact that poetry can have on the wider world and and uh, what sort of a role it plays in terms of attempting to create change in the world?
1: I'm thinking about poetry as a space in which master narratives maybe um, don't allow. by that, I mean, I mean, of course, I'm writing about in my poetry this history that is very much. Um, present in in um in my life and in in korea but i think poetry is this amazing space in which multiple narrators and narratives could Mm -hmm. exist at the same time right in a way Mm -hmm. that other prose writing maybe um doesn't allow with as much freedom because each poem can be a can be from the perspective of a different person, where each poem can have multiple narrators. So in a way, poetry is where like, these infinite lives can, can team. And I think that it is a space in which we could look into the, ar- these, the archive of these lives that maybe that we are not familiar with because it's not in a lot of other records. And we yeah, can right. access them through emotion, through empathy. And I think that is a really powerful effect of poetry. I'm thinking about, for example, Myung Mi Kim's poetry. Um, in which, you know, she it, her her po- her poetic voice is is very complicated and some people might say like abstract. Um but you know, she has these voices that are not in history textbooks, like, for example, a Korean woman who lives in Russia, who who fled there, um, and is still living there and hasn't been to Korean, her language, her Korean language is also a little bit different, a little bit arcane. But these are voices mm-hmm. that we wouldn't really encounter very easily um, in other mediums, I think. But in poetry, it's allowed. It's allowed to put in language that is not the standard language. It's, it's, it's celebrated to record lives that are not, you know, broadcasted in other prosaic ways. So I think poetry is a really important um, document, or poems can be important documents in filling in gaps of history. And also accessing them again through emotion, um, but also I'm thinking more about the function of poetry to not just inform, but also to, in a way, deny the world. If that makes sense. Like, of course, I I value poetry that fill in gaps in our knowledge our historical knowledge like i just said and but i think there is some kind of um disdain towards poetry that is just you know about nature like flowers or romantic love and a lot of those poems are also um a lot of those poems written in more simple universally appealing language is called instagram poetry or like tumblr poetry and it's not allowed the same kind of um, legitimacy, but I think those poems are also needed the poems that heal us, the poems that that we can just enjoy with, e- um, with ease and pleasure. I think you know, poetry can do so much then then um, inform and mobilize and push some kind of um agenda or narrative forward so you know i'm that's what that's what i'm thinking like there is a poem for every occasion and every feeling
0: yeah that we can make space for the each type of poetry that these instagram poems have a space and the more complex complex um abstract poems also have a space because they're each saying and doing different things
1: Right. I mean, their popularity just speaks to the fact that, you know, maybe every single person does enjoy poetry. You know, everyone has the capacity to enjoy poetry. We've just been exposed to too many bad poems or too many bad instructions about how to read poems that a lot of people are like, oh, you know, we don't have time for poetry in this this day and age, or a poem doesn't really do anything, or this Poetry is out of our reach or out of our our concern or whatever. But you know who doesn't want beauty? Who doesn't want
0: right. like
1: magic all the time?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think we're going to get close to wrapping up here. Um, you mentioned <laughs> okay. that you're not working on your next uh, poetry collection just yet. So, do you want to talk about what you are working on?
1: Yeah, um, I'm not working on my next poetry book like with uh, a lot of activeness right now because I am trying to devote a lot of my energy and time to um, promote my first book and mm-hmm. give space to that. Um, I'm working on a chapbook of translated poems. It's coming out early next year out of Tilted Axis Press based in the UK. It's titled Against Healing. And it's a chapbook of poems by nine Korean women poets that I translated. And it's part of the global feminism series that the press is working on. So I. I'm in the finishing stages of that. And I'm also trying to write a dissertation proposal
0: <laughs> in
1: my department here at the University of Chicago. So, yes, so I'm doing those. Good times.
0: <laughs> okay, that sounds great. All of those sound great. <laughs> that chapter book sounds amazing, and I'm definitely going to have to buy that when it comes out. I'm excited about the chapter book, for sure. Yeah, yeah and um a, a, a dissertation sounds like an incredible amount of work that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what I can't i'm doing even imagine.
1: <laughs> i mean it has to come out some way or the other sometimes so <laughs> hopefully
0: um, i'm sure you'll get it done <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> uh well one last question um <laughs> what is something that you're reading or some sort of media that you're consuming right now that you find moving or inspiring?
1: Oh, um, I, (laughs) the first thing that came up was something maybe that is not a really cool answer, (laughs) but (laughs) on Netflix, I watched, you know, season three of we bear bears (laughs) and um
0: do do you know we bear bears i i unfortunately do not oh well it's it's like a cartoon (laughs) i i kind Um, of figured based on the title
1: (laughs) right it's a cartoon i don't know if it's geared towards children I, i mean i suppose it is but i i have enjoyed it very much um it's a story of three bears. One's a polar bear. The other one's, Oh, one's a polar bear. One's a panda bear. And and the third one is a grizzly bear. And they're all brothers. Um, I don't really know their backstory because Netflix only has season three, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I really, I love it because, you know, it, you know, it's about the chosen family in a way. (laughs) Um, there are, you know, from di- they're like different species of bear, but there's interspecies friendship and and brotherhood. And um, the other characters in the cartoon are also, you know, they they're from various backgrounds. It's very, you know, as people would say, diverse. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think it it is um, representative of. Well, this is silly to say. I was going to say, like, the society that we live in, in, like, urban centers like San Francisco, where it's set. But, you know, we don't have talking bears in our real world. So (laughs) what am I saying? But I I watch it because it's very cute and it's very healing. And also, you know, it has representation without hitting people over the head with it. Like, oh, here's, Mm -hmm. like, a token gay person or a token Asian person. You know, it's just a very it's It's a natural part of the narrative, <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Um I read a lot of contemporary Korean women's poetry um recently for the translation project, but also for um my dissertation, and I revisited Yue Soon's poetry, um whose poetry has been translated by Don Mitre very well and has been published by Action Books and has been doing very well but i i really enjoy her poems because they're so bloody and <laughs> so surrealist and fantastical but also um you know a lot of the poems are you know very critical of current events and um in a way, obsessed with death and spirituality a little bit, but in a way that just fills me with energy, not like with dread, <laughs> if that makes sense.
0: It makes perfect just, sense to me. I'm- yeah, just
1: with a vibrant imagery. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, I really love her work, and I recommend her books to other people, and I can do so because there are English translations available. That's great.
0: Um, (laughs) Thank you um, so much for participating in this interview. It's been a delightful discussion. I, I love your book and I wish it wonderful success as you continue to promote it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me space to talk about poems and about my book.
0: You're most welcome. This has been New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Notemark. Thank you so much for listening.